dive in this morning. Have your Bibles turned to Matthew chapter 3, I think. I've got to find my message in here. I'm not sure where it went. It's in the middle down. Here we go. Yeah, Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't, you can look on the screen in a second. This is Jesus uh, coming to John the Baptist, his cousin, the Jordan River, to be baptized. Matthew 3, starting in verse 13. We'll go to verse 17. It says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting or landing on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. First thing I'm going to do this morning is I want to rebuild, or just kind of rename what we ended on last week. Talk about the fact that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, those who could have been born again, we, are, we, are, we have this journey that we're on, and there's joy in the journey, right? That's the idea that salvation, we said last week, and just hear this very clearly so you can kind of know where we're going. Salvation is not a momentary thing, right? It's not a like, hey, I'm, I'm saved, check it off the box, now I'm just going to sit here with my bags packed, waiting for Jesus to come, and please, God, help me not to sin before you come, right? Most people do that. They have that moment when they're 6 to 10 years old, sitting in church, God says, give your life to Jesus today, right? And he bangs on the, whatever this thing's called, the podium, the pulpit, whatever. Get saved. You're going to die and go to hell. And you're going to burn there forever. And it kind of scares, literally, it kind of tries to, tries to scare the hell out of you, literally, right? And all of a sudden, you have that moment, like, okay, right? And you cry to Jesus, save me, because I don't want to burn there at that worm that eats me forever. That's weird to God, right? It's going to be really hot. And I'm going to burn like sulfur, right? I want the smell of sulfur. And there's this whole thing. And in that moment, it's like, and so you're, you're saved. And then the church, the church gives you a Bible and pats you on the back, right? And they check it off, saying, all right, you're saved. You're, we're done with you. Now we can move to the next person who's not saved. But Jesus, we said last week in Philippians chapter 1, it says, He who began a good work in you will bring it unto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so what it says, the work of Jesus is the work of salvation. The work of salvation. The moment of you getting born again, that moment, right, of being saved from hell and saved to heaven, right? And what, what, G, what Paul is saying, listen, salvation's not a, it's not a moment, but it's a process that a lifetime of Jesus again and again saving you from self, saving you from a life of death, saving you from what you used to live in, right? So he says, work out your salvation. Work it out. Work it out with, with fear and with trembling, recognizing it's not about my life, it's about your life, not about my will, but your will. So, so Jesus, is, so the idea is, yes, you have an initiation moment, right? This moment of, of stepping into a different life, into a different kingdom. There's a moment where you cross the threshold into relationship with Jesus, right? But now that you're there, it's a process of Jesus continually, every day, shaping you and molding you and discipling you into his image. And that's the idea of salvation. Salvation is not a momentary thing, right? Yes, there's a moment of stepping into the kingdom, but now I'm living for the kingdom every day. Listen, it is wrong to think that the kingdom of God is heaven. The kingdom of God is not heaven. The kingdom of God is now. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
right? And as soon as you give it to Jesus, what happens? You cross the threshold from your kingdom where you're the Lord, you're the king, you're the ruler, and you're the boss, and you can do whatever you want to, whenever you want to, however you want to, to all of a sudden now you've crossed the threshold into a new kingdom. And in that kingdom, guess what? There are different rules. There are different expectations. There's a different boss, right? There's a different ruler, a different king sitting on the throne of your heart. And in that moment, everything shifts. And in that moment, guess what? You're already in the kingdom of God with him. Eternity for you began the moment you gave it to Jesus. Eternity is not when you get to heaven. Eternity begins right now when you give your life to him. And so here's a picture for you. How many of you have ever had more than one job in your life and more than one boss? Everyone who's probably ever a certain age, right, has had at least one job or two jobs, right? So imagine this with me very quickly. You have a job over here. We're going to call it job A. A becomes before B, right? Job A is on this side, right here, okay? This side of the stage is job A. involves everything you ever did, right? And in job A, you had expectations that were on you. You had a job you had to do. You had people, like deadlines you had to meet, expectations to live up to you, and a boss who would tell you what to do, right? That's job A. And all of a sudden one day, there's this, this moment, this moment of awakening saying, this is not the job for me. This is the new job. And so you say, I quit, I leaving, whatever it may be, right? And, and you cross the threshold from one job into the next. You have a brand new job. We call it job B. Okay? So you've left job A. You're now, you're now going into job B. And you come into job B and guess what? There's another boss. There's new expectations, right? There's, there's new desires, new deadlines. Everything has changed, right? Everything has changed. So your boss looks at you and says in job B, hey, glad that you're here. Let me go ahead and kind of give you this the layout, the lay of the land real quick. First and foremost, you need to be here at 8 a.m. Try to be done by 4 a.m. So work, get your job done. So we'll start at 8, be done at 4. And all of a sudden you start going, hmm. You know, my old job, I got there at 9 Got there at nine, right? And I left at five. So, man, I mean, maybe I can just kind of combine those and get there at nine and leave it four. That's a great idea, right? So we kind of create these own expectations of yourself of kind of just deciding what you want to do. So you start getting there at nine. And what happens? People are looking at you like, what are you doing? Your boss comes and says, what are you doing? I told you to get here, right, at at eight o'clock. He's like, well, yeah, but in my old job, we got here at nine, and honestly, I just like that a lot better. I kind of just want to live by my, kind of live like that if you don't mind. That's, that's what I'm planning on doing. And the boss is like, what? So the boss says, no, no. And he starts giving you, say, Here the, here's the agenda of what you, what you need to be doing, what I need you to do today, right? Here's your, here's your agenda, and make sure you get here on time. And you go, let me call my old boss real quick and see what he thinks about that, right? And like, hey there, right? My, boss, my new boss over here wants me to do A, B, and C, and and, and your, your new boss is going, what are you talking about, right? Because we all recognize this doesn't work. 
You don't come into a new situation and live by the rules and the expectation of the old place, right? When you cross that threshold from one into another, it was a new, it was a new situation, right? It was a new job, new expectations, all of these things. So that means you have to now live by the rules and the expectations of job B over here. And so the idea is it's very similar for the kingdom. When, we, when we're living life over here for ourselves, when we are the Lord of our own lives, the king of our own life, we get to do what we want to do and what feels good to us and what feels right. We use the word feel a lot in our own little kingdom over here because we want to do what feels good and feels right to us in the moment. And we step over and we, and we, want, we want the blessing, right? We want the blessing of our paycheck from Job B, right? It's a better paycheck, a lot better. We want, that, we want that, that paycheck. We step over here into God's kingdom. We want the blessings of God, the stuff of God, and the things of God, and all the things that he promises in Scripture that wants to give us, right? We want all of that, but we probably in our lives want to still live by the rules of job A because we like doing what we want to do and lording our own life and ruling our own life. And God says over here, that doesn't doesn't work. It's a, you've left, you've been born again. You died to this, right? You've died to this. Even raised new life. That's what you see in baptism right here. Jesus, he says, I want to give you the model and understanding here. I'm doing this for you. to have a picture of what it looks like for all who come and enter into my kingdom. You go down into death. You go down into the water. And then you were raised. You were, listen, you were born again. You were raised to new life, into a brand new family, into a brand new kingdom, and you've crossed the threshold, and you don't get to do what you want to do anymore, because if you do, it will kill you. You have to listen. I lo- Listen, he's not our boss. He's our friend. He is our lover. He is our brother, and he is our Lord. It's all of these mixed up. Remember, he is zealous for us with an undeterred affection and love for us. And so if we call ourselves Christians, then we can't live like this anymore. Why? Because we've died to it. We've left that job and we've moved to a new kingdom with a new Lord. It's like the, have you ever seen the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? Chronicles of Narnia. They leave London during World War II. With Churchill and Chamberlain and, 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 and the Nazis and, and all these people, right? And they come over here, what? To a completely different world. They literally crossed a threshold and all of a sudden here's Aslan, this lion warrior king who is dangerous but good. And all of a sudden they've left this behind and they want to be here forever with a new set of rules and a new law and a new expectation with a new Lord who loves them and loves to play with them and to run around with them and to get really serious when the enemy's coming and to deal with issues and to separate things from death into life. And what we do is we then step into this born-again existence. We're born into a new life with a new Lord and a new existence and a new set of rules. And if we still try to live by this, we're going to be miserable. Because us doing what we want to do does not lead to good things. Listen, yesterday, Randall and I went down to, her brother Victor was, was, uh, was in a barbecue competition down in Kennesaw, like the pigs and something. I was like, pigs and peaches. What, anybody else go yesterday, pigs and peaches? It was pretty cool, right? A lot of fun. 
So we go down there and, and, you know, we, and we think it's really small. We go, to a, we go get a big breakfast, like one of those like unhealthy big breakfasts, right, with lots and lots of food and lots lots of stuff. You're sitting there going, I shouldn't eat this. I shouldn't eat this. I shouldn't eat this. But, man, it's good, right? And so we get outside. It's like 110% humidity, right? It's like 90 degrees out there, and you're standing on the asphalt. And so we're walking. I had this great idea. Yeah, let's get, let's get a big milkshake to go on top of it, right? This feels good to me. It looks good good to me, right? And so I get the milkshake and we start walking around. I'm like, I don't feel good, <laughs> right? I don't feel good. I start like, oh my gosh, we had a buddy of ours we saw at the restaurant we went to. And I look over at him and he's eating like yogurt and like and, and fruit. And I'm like, oh my gosh, God, why didn't I do that, right? Because if when I, listen, when we try to live by our own mind and our own desires and the things that look good, I mean, it's great in the moment and kills us in the end, doesn't it? Because I know I should, what I should be eating and what I should be doing and what I should, what I should, should sometimes be drinking, right? It's like, I know this, but I'm living for my whatever, living for myself. And so the idea is that our joy in our journey then is found in this journey of salvation, right? Jesus moving in us every day, saving us from self. That's why we're a living sacrifice every day, dying to self, dying to self, living for God, Him maturing us, Him growing us, living for the kingdom, living with the expectations of the kingdom, living with the fruit of the kingdom of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, right? And the gifts of the Holy Spirit coming to like right? All these incredible things that are part of God's kingdom. He says, you've been born into that. Don't live for this. You've left job A. You've gone to kingdom B. You've crossed the threshold. And there's joy. Why? Because he's not a boss, but a friend and a father, a lover and a Lord. And we live then with this possibility of joy in the kingdom of being born again in a new existence, in a new life, that everything's changed. Using the language of Narnia, winter has passed and spring has come. Why? Because we've crossed the threshold of Jesus and we're born again into a new life. And there's joy because he is good And he is for us, and he's working in us to bring us to completion, the work that he started, that he's bringing to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. There's this awakening to this existence, this kingdom of being born again in which there's joy. But if we're really honest with ourselves, and we think about life, It is not accurate to say that there is always joy in our journey, is there, right? I sit up here and say, you can have joy in your journey. You're like, yeah, but I don't, and I don't believe you now. And you're mean, but by the time it's Saturday, you're like, I don't even, that's totally wrong, right? There's no joy in my journey this week, man, right? There's living that reality. And so the fact is, is this, yeah, then listen, in the midst of everyday life, man, there's difficulty and there's monotony and there's drudgery and there's the mundane and we wrestle with it and it's tension and we live in this place. We're like, there's no joy in the journey. That's just a load of whatever, right? I don't believe in that. I want to, but it's hard. I wish I could, but I'm not sure I can. 
And so this morning, I want to dive into that reality. I want to dive into that tension that we face as followers of Jesus. And I want us to do it by just kind of looking at verse 16 and 17. It's a snapshot to, to build a theory off of. I'm going to build a theory this morning, okay? It says this, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him or landing on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. With him, I am well pleased. Now listen, when I look at the life of Jesus, I find lots of things to be pleased about, right? I see the miracles, and I see the deliverances, and I see the way he related to people, right? And how he was with the marginalized, with the broken, with the hurting, right? With the people, and he was loving his neighbors as himself. And then the pinnacle of what you find, you know, father finding pleasure in is he died, he died this death on a cross, right? And how difficult is this? And of course, man, the Father delights in and finds pleasure in Jesus because look at his life. But it's interesting to me, and I think I've said it before, that up to this point, Jesus had done absolutely none of that. He hadn't done any of it. In fact, there's such a, there's, there, I mean, what we have in the first 30 years of Jesus' life is a historical void, right? We know we have one snapshot on the canvas of his life when he was dedicated in the temple, and he comes in, and he said, and he and his parents leave. He stays in there the, with the Pharisees, teachers of the law. Parents go freak out, like, oh my gosh, where's Jesus? They turn the boat around, they come back, and they find him in the temple. And he says, well, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? And it says, Mary treasured these words in her heart. That's all we really know about 30 years of Jesus' life. I mean, as it relates to historical data, right? It is a void of historical data. There's these urban legends out there about some clay pigeons that can fly, all this stuff, right? But who knows? We don't really, really know, right? We know really nothing except for that one story of the 30 years of Jesus' life living up to, leading up to his ministry, which basically means that Jesus had to live an everyday life just like us. And isn't that the word, right? Everyday life. I mean, when I say everyday life, I have some very clear things that come to mind. I think about waking up every morning with the alarm clock, right? Everyday life. I think I'm having to go upstairs and wonder, am I going to, which side of the bed my kids going to wake up on this morning? The good side or the mean side, right? What's it going to be? How hard are the work this morning to like get their, you know, get their clothes on, get them breakfast, get them down to the bus, right? And have my normal conversation, my bus, my, my bus conversation, people at the bus stop, right? Then I have my everyday life of walking back up, eating breakfast, spending time with Jesus, Right, going and then going to work, riding my car to work, right, not checking my email while I go sometimes, right, just trying to catch up on everything for the day and getting here and talking and you know I'm getting and then going home, right, going home and getting the, the girls are there and be playing, being dad, playing dad, whatever it is, and doing stuff, hanging out, doing dinner, right, taking the trash out, changing the litter box, putting the kit, you know I'm getting, I mean like you could go on and on, right. Everyone has the monotony and the drudgery and the mundaneness of their everyday life. Now, you may not, you may not, you may not use the word, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, it's like the monotony. It's that every day is the same thing again and again, right? It's like Groundhog Day, every day, right? Every day is the same, right? You're like, oh, my God. You're like, you kind of get excited when something happens in your neighborhood. They're like, whoa, this is different, whoa, right? It's not good, but at least it's different, right? Whatever it may be, whoa. This is something, this is, the monotony's changed, right? 
And so for 30 years, Jesus lived this lifestyle. He lived this life. He had an everyday life. He'd wake up, and who knows, you know, get the eggs from the chickens, milk the, milk the goat, milk the cow, whatever it may be, wake, the, wake brothers and sisters up, help mom, help dad, go to work, whatever it may be. I don't know. What, like, but Jesus lived for 30 years with a historical void, just like us, because his life was just an everyday, monotonous, drudgery-type life. Which should make you go, huh, then what exactly did his life look like in that period of time that caused the father to say, man, this is my son whom I love, and I am, and with him I am well pleased. Because I look at the monotonous, drudgery-type life and think, well, that should be, that, that's the life that leads to the greatness. Right? That's the, things, that's the thing Jesus did to, to get to the great breakthrough of life and everything that's so great and grand. But Father says back, no, 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 this is what delighted me. This is what caused joy. This is what pleased me over here. And so in that, then, there must be something that we need to learn about our everyday life that causes it to please the Father also. And that's where we come this morning, this idea of, of this everyday life. What happened in it that pleased the Father? What is it, right? This part of his life that pleased the Father that we can learn from. You know, one of the things I, I was reading the book, and there was a guy named Justin the Martyr. He lived from 100 A.D. to 165 A.D., and he was just a great man of God who, big into, you know, just apologetics, really, kind of defending the gospel. He lived during Marcus Aurelius. You ever seen uh, Gladiator, Marcus Aurelius, the guy, the old guy in the, in the beginning of the movie, right? That, he lived during this time, and he ultimately was killed for his faith, right? Ultimately killed for his faith. That's why he called him the martyr. And so, anyway, he's killed for his faith. But in one of his writings that he did, he, just, he basically kind of has this random statement and he talked about this, that he grew up over the hill from Galilee, where Jesus had grown up, and he lived writing this one time. He said, he said, as I walked over the hill, I saw the plows made by Joseph and Jesus, and they were still being used widely in his day. Do you catch that? Justin the martyr, right, in his lifetime, he comes over the hill into Galilee, looks down, he sees someone using the plow made by Joseph and made by Jesus. And I just and I read that and I just went again, huh? Right? Because when I think about some sort of instrument or if I were to attach something to Jesus, it may be the cross. This is maybe something out there, out there, right? The cross, the cross of Jesus, right? But isn't it interesting that Jesus touched the cross for maybe a total of like two and a half days? He touched the plow for about twenty years of his life, maybe even longer, depending how strong he was and how much he could handle the oxen pulling the plow, right? He so I can. It make more sense, at least as it relates to how much he touched it, to put a plow right here rather than a cross. Now, you know what I'm getting at, right? You know what I'm meaning that. Obviously, this has great meaning, but, but you know what I'm getting at. The plow represented the actual majority of his everyday life. And I just love this picture because I've got to put myself in the place of saying the everyday life of Jesus in such a way of even plowing a field with oxen in the dirt, and all oh, this terrible, right? The monotony and the drudgery and the pain of that, right, brought pleasure to the Father. 
And this is a beautiful picture. That something in the heart of, in the life of Jesus, something in the life of Jesus, something in the monotony and the drudgery of his life, pleased God. Because what I would say, and this is my theory, that, the, that Jesus himself lived life with everything in every moment being done to worship God and for an audience of God only to the point that it ultimately brought joy to him and joy to the Father. He lived every moment of every day recognizing that being in the kingdom of God now, that every action was an action he was called to do in the kingdom as a family of God, then everything he did then was for the Father and for his pleasure. And this then changes everything than even about our own lives. The majority of Jesus' life, not unlike all of ours, the monotony and the drudgery of everyday life, and just like us, it would be silly to think that Jesus, it was really profitable and fulfilling and exciting to pull some ox, to let the oxen pull a plow. He'd be just like us, oh, this is so hot, but God... I'm doing this for you. And that's the interesting thing about Jesus. The way in which he lived his life, his everyday life, calls the Father to speak clearly to all who are present. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So the theory again, Jesus lived his life from the very beginning with a clear understanding. Everything he did, he did it to honor and please the Father. Not to earn love or to earn honor from the Father, but just to honor him and do it for him. And here's the piece. Jesus lived with one audience. He didn't live for his peers. He didn't live for the people he wanted to perform for and impress. He did it for his father who loved him. Now listen, my girls do both softball and they do tumble. So they started out, they took tumble off for the summer, but they're doing it again, right? So a couple of weeks ago, Randall wasn't feeling well. I took out the girls. Uh, I took them to tumble, right? And I figured, hey, this is a great place to get my work done. They're going to be occupied. I can be occupied here. I've got a lot of stuff to get done, right? So I start doing stuff. And about 15 minutes in, I hear this voice, Daddy! I'm like, what? <clears throat> He's looking like this, like this. I'm like, what? You're going to be watching me. Okay. So I'll watch her, and I'm like, good job. And, and, you know, and I start looking, and she's like, Daddy. I'm like, what? Look at me. I'm like, okay. Put the paper down. For the next 45 minutes, it was this. She doing, trying to do back handsprings. I'm like, yes, good job. Awesome, right? About 30 minutes in, she's like, get the video camera. Come bring it over here and video me and send it to Mommy, right? And so I go over my iPhone, and I film her, right? And she gets done. She gets done doing it goes like this to the camera, right? And I send it to her. Why? Because she wants me as an audience, and she wants her mom as an audience, right? We become her audience. And here's the deal. I mean, she loves her teacher, but I'll be completely honest with you. Her teacher came over, started telling her all these things she needed to do, right? She walked off, and Sarah looked at me and goes, like this. Basically like, you know it's just me and you, Dad, right? And so she starts doing the back handsprings again and again. Listen, some of them she's succeeding. Some of them she's doing awful in. But you know that each time, good job, baby, awesome, right? I told the first service, how funny it would have been to have a video camera in fast forward like this. Oh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, like this all again and again, right? So what it would have been is it's like every, like, ten seconds I was doing this. Good job, woo. Every time, do it, look over. Yeah. And literally for 45 straight minutes. 
And then it's Anna Catherine's turn. And so she starts. And I, and I look at her and say, listen, when you start doing real stuff, just call me. While you're warming up, I'm not watching. But once you start doing the real stuff, let me know. So sure enough, 15 minutes in, Dad, okay, let's do this. Good job, right? Again, next 45 minutes filming her, right? I should have put it on. I had it on video. I should show it to you. And Catherine's on the screen going, yeah, right, whatever. It's a lot of fun. But in the moment, here's the deal. She only cares about one thing, the audience of mom and dad. No one else matters. All she cares is, are you watching me, and are you finding pleasure in what I'm doing? And even when she succeeded, even when she failed, I found pleasure in it, and she knew it, and she celebrated. She got excited. Why? Because there was a pleasure that I was finding in what she was doing, whether she succeeded or failed in the moment. And that's the thing we wrestle with in life. We live under the guise of performance where if we do what we're supposed to do and succeed, then God's like this. If we don't, he's like this, right? And the reality is, and you're going to have to work through this, is yes, we have to be obedient to the Father, but no matter what happens in life, he is pleased with us because we are his children and he loves us. He may not be pleased with our actions. And you, and you recognize the tension we face as followers of Jesus of obedience and following him and his will, but his delight and his pleasure in us. And we have to live in this place of saying, God, you, are, you love me unconditionally. And you are pleased with me. And then our actions then become not earning or proving, but just as a child does to a father, just saying, this is for you. I'm not trying to earn anything or impress you. I just want to show it to you. And I know you delight in me. And you find pleasure in me. And so in Jesus, right, everything he did to honor and to honor and please his father, not to earn love or to, to prove God his love, whatever it may be. And here ends where we must begin to find this ultimate joy. This is where real joy is found in our journey. When we are born again into a new existence with a new king, with new direction, a new calling, we've crossed the threshold into a new purpose. And our joy is found in knowing that we are being led by one who loves us and that everything we do, listen, everything we do, if we do it just for his pleasure and his delight and his glory, it pleases him. It pleases him, meaning that, meaning that if even if the mon, even that the, even the mundane things and the drudgery of life, listen, is worship to him, if we intend it that way. The drudgery of your workspace, in your, it's like I don't know about you, but like if you live, if you work under fluorescent lights, it's like they're just zapping your life out of you and killing you as you're living in your cubicle with that real light from a window. God, just give me a light to live this, to have in my office, God, so I don't die from the fluorescent light, right? All this stuff we live in, it's mundane, monotony, drudgery, difficulty. You cut, Listen, stay-at-home moms and dads, you sit there and you feel like all day long, I just clean up after my kids, I clean up their messes again and again. I make their dinner. I wash their clothes. By the time I get done with the day, it's like 11 o'clock at night. What kind of life is this? Are you kidding me? 
right? And there's this monotony and this drudgery and all of this stuff in life. But the idea is when we do all of that, listen, again, because we're living in the kingdom, when we do all of it in the context of the kingdom, then it's kingdom stuff that we're doing for him. And if I intend it as worship to him, then he receives it that way as I do it unto him and he delights in it and he delights in us. Good job. Well done. So love you. But I didn't quite, wasn't quite successful. It doesn't matter. I just find delight and I pleasure in you. We live in this place, right? Gerard Manley Hopkins, a pastor in the 1800s, says, To lift up hands in prayer, it gives God glory. But a man with a dung fork lifting manure in his hands, a woman with a slop pail, give him glory too. He is so great that all things give him glory if you mean they should. And so for 30 years, Jesus lived probably with a dung fork in hand and a pail. Maybe not a pail, he's Jewish, right? But he at least lived this dung fork in hand. He lived going out with the chickens, going out and doing the monotony for 30 years. of a, There's no historical data that pleased the father because everything that he did as he took that plow that he and his father made together, and he stood behind the ox and he says, God, no one's going to see this except you, but I don't really care because I do it for your glory. It'll bring glory to you and worship in your kingdom, God, because everything that I intend as worship to you to bring you glory brings you delight and brings you pleasure. Therefore, there's no such thing really as anything monotonous and drudgery, even though it feels that way, because it's actually worship before the Lord. There is no such thing in God's kingdom as big things and little things. No such thing as mundane things and exciting things, depending on how we treat them in relationship to Jesus. Judson Hudson Taylor once said this, a little thing is a little thing, but faithfulness in a little thing is a big thing, right? A little thing is a little thing, but faithfulness, loving God in it makes it a big thing. Mother Teresa, I don't do big things. I do small things with big love. Right? It's like I do them with everything that I have. Listen, Mother Teresa, who did she minister to? The forgotten. Do you know what that means? She was forgotten. Because if you only minister to forgotten people, then you're all forgotten. But God, he did it for an audience of Jesus. And in time, God raised her up to, be a, to have a platform for the world to see her. But for how many years of her life did she move among forgotten people, meaning she was utterly and totally forgotten for probably 20, 30, or 40 years? But she did big things. with them. She did small things with a big love, right? Little things or little things until they're done for God's glory to become big things, right? This can change our perspective on life when embraced because it makes us realize it doesn't necessarily what we do for God that pleases and fulfills us, but how we do it and our motivation behind it, right? We don't, we don't do these things to please God. We don't do it to please ourselves. It's ultimately for God and it's our motivation behind it. Meaning if I change, listen, if I change diapers today for the glory of God, then he's worshiped. As it be the exact same thing if you're standing up here in the front row, running back and forth with your hands up, praying in tongues, prophesying as you go, right? Moving all the gifts of the Spirit, just doing all this stuff, right? It's the same, the same amount of glory and worship as it does when you change diapers in, in, for God's glory. 
Sweep the floor today for God's glory. It's worship. Do payroll. Take out the trash. Meet my deadline for an audience of God. At the end of the day, it's worship. It pleases. He's like, oh, it's a little great. Right? He does it on, nonstop. Pleasure. Delight. Here we go. This is a new kingdom. You're not working for me. You don't have to. It's not what you do, right? It's this heart of worship. Everything that happens, everything monotony, everything in drudgery, everything mundane for my glory. And remember, man, I find pleasure in you. Drudgery done for other humans. Drudgery done for human audiences. It will always leave you empty and will always lead to drudgery. But drudgery done for God produces joy in us as he delights over and finds pleasure in us. Jesus was pleasing to his father for 30 years of monotony and drudgery. He simply shifted with vision and turned into worship. Brother Lawrence said, this is called practicing the presence of God. I'm literally intending to practice as if every day his presence is with me. I'm just going to practice it everywhere I go. So I brush my teeth today. I'm doing this for your, for your glory, God. Amen. Hallelujah. Right? You can do that if you want. It makes it easier for you. I don't know. Right? Just brushing my teeth. I'm doing, taking the trash, changing the litter box. Right? I'm talking to the kids. I'm doing the kids' homework. All the stuff. All for the glory of God. And it changes perspective. And all of a sudden we live looking like this with everything we do, not to please, not to, not, not, to, not to approve or whatever. It's simply to do it knowing that he takes delight in us. And this is the joy and the monotony that changes everything about life when everything that we do is worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your presence with us. God, we praise you, Jesus, again, that that you begin a work that you finish. That even as, God, we stand here today and we cross the threshold and and all that we're doing in obedience and all that we're doing, because this is simply stuff we have to do during the day, God. It's an opportunity to worship you as we do it for you. Not to prove anything, not to earn anything. It's just just to be with you and to do it with you and for you. This is we do is this is this is we did as when we were kids, and this is our kids did with us. Saying, just watch me, Daddy, watch me. Watch me, mommy, just one more time, just watch me. And we're like, yeah, that's awesome. And God, you just love us in this way. Father, help us. We live in this tension, God, that we're called to be holy. To be perfect. And so, Father, we, we feel in that this need to perform. But Father, really what you're saying is, listen, you've been set apart into a new kingdom. And I will empower you. And I will share with you steps you need to take to be obedient. And even when we fail, God, God, you still love us. And you are still delighted in us. You may be broken over it, but you love us and you delight in us. And Father, I praise you, we never have to perform for you. We never had to, and we never have to. And so, Father, this morning, would you reveal yourself that we could know you in this way. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.